Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our most recent panel discussion and was recorded in June of 2022. Our talk is hosted by Dr. Vili Semler, who is joined by Dr. Rafael Chap and Jose Pedro Bastos Neves. Dr. Semler earned his doctorate from the Free University of Berlin in Germany. He is the author of several books, including Sustainable Accumulation and Dynamic Portfolio Decisions, and has appeared in numerous economic journals, such as the Journal of Applied Econometrics, the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organizations, and the Journal of Economic Dynamics and Control. Dr. Chap received her master's in comparative business law and received her PhD in economics. Mr. Bastos Neves is a current PhD student at the New School of Social Research, where he focuses on climate change, development finance, and macroeconomics. Together, we talked about the impacts of a carbon tax, how taxes impact inequality, and how private investment patterns have changed throughout the years. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Oh, very good. So, all right. So, um, my thanks go to the Henry George School of um, Social Science and uh, uh, active program there on uh, some political economy uh, issue. And uh, the, um, it's well organized from uh, the Henry George School. Uh, Hima is um, uh, the chair of this uh, session here. And uh, what we want to present is a, is a kind of, well, uh, well, trial balloon to having uh, some idea of how to uh, uh, prop up more the discussion on uh, uh, climate protection and uh, financing uh, climate mitigation. And um, we uh, were thinking about a particular topic, namely on uh, tax on carbon intensive wells. You will see why this is a, a new topic somewhat, but it's on the other hand connected to a number of other important current issues and uh, which I will do, introduce you briefly uh, in about five or 10 minutes. Then uh, uh, my co-author, Jose uh, Bastos Neves will uh, continue with the next um, uh, presentation, with the next steps. Uh, I uh, want to also refer uh, this so the first topic that here I you see the first line I will speak about climate change wealth distribution and uh, public uh, goods. Um, when you talk about taxation, though, um, Henry George was one of the first um, great 19th century author who thought about well a land tax. A land tax is basically what was the expansion on the US and the uh, rising value of land, you could get rich with this, right? So, uh, and he introduced uh, the idea of a land tax. And uh, in some ways, this is related to his idea because we're not thinking only about the land tax as the value, uh, the tax on the value of land, but land usually also, uh, well, implies some mineral rights. So, for example, you can extract fossil fuel and oil and gas and all kinds of uh, uh, valuable um, uh, resources from that and then sell it and you get rich. 
so to speak, and uh, Henry George was calling this uh, uh, rent from my land as an unearned income. And in some sense, this uh, uh, unearned income, though uh, getting uh, rich from uh, fossil fuel, uh, has similar features, you see, and uh, it might be justified to uh, have their uh, more explicit uh, tax treatment on this as Henry George proposed to the land, to uh, the value of land. So um, now I want to uh, uh, show now in the next step, some connection of our paper to three major uh, currently discussed big issues um, beyond the thought about uh, Henry George, namely, uh, climate change, wealth distribution, and public goods or public uh, well, funding of uh, publicly available goods or bads, as we will see later. So, uh, climate change is one of the most important uh, uh, current topic in politics in the US and Europe, everywhere. The challenges from climate change and mitigation of climate change and climate protection is. Uh, important issue. Uh, but also, as you see, uh, the other issue is uh, the rising wealth inequality that we have in the US and Europe and other parts of the world. The um, Gini coefficients for our wealth is worse than for the uh, income the Gini. And uh, there is a big um, heavy discussion on well, who's going to pay for uh, the uh, state expenditure and for public goods or for the uh, mitigation of climate change. Yeah, so these three things are very currently, uh, currently very big topic, very timely, very much in the uh, public debate. So uh, the first topic, climate protection and climate <coughs> challenges. So you, everybody has seen this so with the increasing disasters and weather extremes, the frequency and the severities of disasters are rising. For example, weather extreme winter get very cold, summer get very hot. You have uh, forest fires, you have landslides, you have uh, uh, sea level rise and floods, and you have big storms, you have uh, uh, very hot and warm days. These climate um, or weather extremes produce a lot of um, well events, and these events we try to study them in terms of frequency and the severity of these events. And you can see that on the right hand side, the red line that you extracted from data from roughly 1970, 80 here. Uh, the red line is the temperature rise, and the blue line is the, the CO2 um, emission, uh, stock of emission in the atmosphere. So as you can see, now uh, they are roughly moving parallel. There's a high correlation between them. And so what we studied in some of our work is how are the frequency and the um, uh, severity of disasters connected to this? So, and you can see so the droughts are higher, slightly extreme weather events and extreme temperature are going up, but particular flooding is going up uh, heavily, as you can see 
that these are the storms, are hurricanes, typhoons, and so on. You can see how they are going up. Here are the wildfires, and here are the landslides. These are data from a university website of Belgium, EM data, it's called, and they are actually available from uh, 19, 1900 on until now. But here are the most uh, 40, 40, 50 years data here. So you see the weather extreme events also going up with these uh, events. So climate protection is now one of the major, has become one of the major issues in the public uh, debate and in many conferences. And one of the earlier uh, uh, instruments to uh, uh, mitigate the climate, to prevent the rise of the CO2 emission was the carbon tax. And so the carbon tax has been adopted uh, in many countries, particularly in uh, Northern Europe. Uh, the carbon tax uh, has some uh, coverage now of the total CO2 emission, five well up to 20%, but it's not, uh, very, not very effective. So there are carbon tax uh, is increasing and the revenue of this is increasing, but it's still not very effective. And um, the goal of the uh, Paris Agreement and the uh, uh, recent agreement in um, Scotland was that so in uh, 1930, so roughly the carbon emission should be, the net carbon emission should be half of this, so roughly here now, and the 2050, the carbon emission should go down to zero, the net carbon emission. So because there's still carbon emission going on, but there's also some dissipation of carbon in the atmosphere, so the net carbon emission should be zero. This is roughly the commitment in these um, conferences, and this is what actually is going on. You can see it's not much, uh, um, much uh, decreasing now, the carbon emission itself. So uh, now uh, this is uh, one big topic in the uh, public. And well, the other big public, uh, timely and heavily discussed topic is the uh, evolution of the inequality of wealth. So here, this is mainly was uh, triggered by uh, Piketty. Here you can see the wealth evolution since 1920s. Uh, for the uh, first, this is the 1% uh, wealth share of the, the population in uh, different countries. And the US is the um, blue line here. And at that time period here, there was a high income tax introduced. And so, the high income tax drove down the uh, ownership of uh, wealth of the 1%, but then since the 1960s and 70s, it's rising again in almost all countries, as you can see here. One of the these uh, income tax was reduced. Another trend was the, actually the corporate income tax was uh, uh, also uh, reduced. And here's the line for the OECD, as you can see, and for other area, Africa or other Asian areas, you can see from 30, 35%, it's now uh, roughly 20% the corporate income tax. So that's also, um, uh, of course, leaving much uh, income and wealth more in private hands and less in the uh, available for public action. So uh, that's another um, trend. Now, uh, we have done the following study that is uh, using the um, Survey of Consumer Finance in a paper, it's also a social science research network paper. 
Ms. Parker uh, and uh, myself, and we are plotting here on the horizontal axis some kind of normal income, so that would be very low, that's going up here. But with that, as you can see, as the normal income is going up, the income and the gains from wealth is rapidly going up. Yeah? In other words, a great component of the higher income level of the uh, uh, population is uh, uh, constituted or caused by the income from wealth. Yeah, so in other words, that's driving the, uh, the wealth income, uh, measured as capital gains on this X, is uh, driving for certain types of income, the uh, wealth, as you can see. So the wealth income becomes more important than the actually wages and salary as driving uh, wealth uh, distribution, as you can see here, yeah? So uh, the last point is this one now here. If one thinks about, well, um, that uh, these economic activities and the uh, huge uh, rise of, uh, well, uh, industrialization and uh, the rise of large corporations and uh, uh, huge uh, uh, economic progress, we have increased the GDP by a factor of 12 or 15 since the end of the 19th century there is uh, increasingly an emission of CO2 emission going on. And there is now um, the question, well, how to pay for this or how to stop this? Uh, now, there is an old theory in public finance that's called the proportionality principle. And this is new what we introduce in our paper here now. Namely, a proportionality principle means so those uh, groups or those individuals that have a higher uh, consumption of public goods should pay a higher tax. That's the proportionality principle that was developed in the 19th century, also then in public finance. Vixa, Linda, Musgrave has big uh, discussion on this, on the proportionality principle. You use pop more public goods, therefore you have to pay more. Now we reverse this and we are saying, well, but there are groups and firms and corporations and industries that produce more public bads, namely the CO2 emission, the externality, the long run effect on the uh, temperature and on the climate disasters. Well, then they also have to pay more because they produce more public bads, just using the proportionality principle again. As you can see, that's basically the uh, application that we try to do. And then um, that will help to reduce the carbon emission and maybe also solve to some extent the wealth distribution issues. And uh, this was uh, maybe a, I slip left out one um, slide here. Uh, there were, were a lot of proposals nowadays on uh, correcting the wealth distributions. And these proposals uh, were triggered by the Piketty um, uh, research there. And uh, there's either a tax on uh, companies or individual network, uh, network tax. Uh, though in other words, it's a tax on wealth, on general wealth. It's not a tax on specific, so to speak, carbon intensive wealth. It's a tax on in general wealth. But, and that, um, Wealth is not necessarily all bad. It could be very productive and very uh, welfare enhancing, but there's certain type of wealth that's not welfare enhancing. 
So uh, this discussion was is heavily going on and the economists in theory, they say, well, having a tax on general wealth, this is a, cap a tax on capital and this will reduce uh, employment and growth in the future. That is a famous Chemley uh, Jatt uh, zero tax, uh, capital tax uh, theory, uh, which is doubted a lot nowadays in another literature. And uh, the general wealth tax is very hard to um, um, operationalize in the sense to make it practical uh, because it's very difficult to measure uh, general wealth, the stock of general wealth. So the second or third house uh, 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 adding to that, or is it just used, used for, for home? And so uh, then there is, uh, is practical measurements error and most countries in advanced, most advanced countries have tried this many times, but the wealth tax has uh, so tapered out and has not be, been very effective. There were also, of course, there's capital flights and so on that will stop the uh, that will uh, work in the opposite direction. So a general wealth tax doesn't seem to be so effective, and because it's a, a tax on the stock of wealth. So we are proposing now, so to speak, a wealth tax on uh, a tax on um, carbon uh, intensive wealth, and we don't uh, suggest to uh, impose this on the uh, stock of wealth, but rather on the flow of wealth, of the income from this uh, carbon intensive wealth. And this is now the point where I pass this on to Jose. Jose, can you take over? Sure, let Jose? me just, uh, in, thank you really. I'm gonna continue the presentation of our paper. And in the section uh, two, I'm gonna talk specifically what we mean by, uh, this carbon wealth tax. So mainly the goal is to shift investment and to shift uh, investors from away from carbon intensive sectors and capitals and wealth uh, and into green uh, companies, green um, wealth, right? So it's uh, uh, equation two here, uh, sorry, equation one. We have uh, the logarithmic return of a asset of a, a, an asset price of whatever kind. And when we talk about a, a carbon wealth tax, we're thinking about uh, applying uh, a tax on this specific return. So we, uh, what we mean okay. is an extraordinary increase in taxation for capital gains of carbon intensive companies. Uh, provided it is high enough, this is equivalent to taxing net worth um, this is a result shown in Gunevin and co-authors paper from 2019. And the main advantage is that um, its implementation is straightforward, given that in the United States, for instance, the IRS already oversees uh, capital gains in the tax filing from uh, persons and people and uh, firms. Equation two, we explore um, the potential use of tax revenues, the carbon tax revenues to fund uh, green subsidies. So this is what is known in the literature as the second dividend. Uh, for instance, the classic reference here is uh, Nordau's book from 2013. And um, so 
in, in terms of the um, green revenues, it will it would increase the subsidies subsidies increase the, the revenues compared to the um, uh, to the general case. And the last term is just an adjustment term here that we use to that takes into account the size of the tax base. Uh, let me just move on. Um, okay, so, but really the, the main issue here, one of the main issues in our uh, proposal is to come, come up with a way to discriminate between carbon intensive and green companies. Looking oh, in the literature. Jose, yeah. you don't show the, see the, the uh, presentation, the slides. Nobody is seeing no. my slides? They are not moving. They're not moving, right. Uh, uh, let me see what happened here. Resume share. Okay. Well, let me, I'm going to stop sharing and share again. This never happened to me before. <laughs> Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, I was wondering. Yeah, ah, so no. can you see now? Yes. Is it moving? Sorry. So this slide, uh, I had the, the two equations that I uh, spoke about before. Um, so uh, the idea here is, as I was saying, the um, uh, is to come up with a way to discriminate between carbon intensive and green companies. The looking in the literature, the mostly uh, the most widely used uh, source of uh, uh, of this information is the input output data. For instance, the world input output database is uh, used by many uh, authors. Uh, but the problem for us is that they basically tell us uh, how much uh, pollution each economic sector produces. Whereas when we think about a, a taxation, we have to assess the a company level um, uh, carbon emission, right? So, uh, because of course, taxation is usually levied on companies. So talking about company level data on carbon emissions, there are some initiatives like the GHG protocol and the carbon disclosure project. And there are others as well that aim at producing standardized, comparable and publicly available uh, CO2 emission metrics. So usually they rely on what is called the three scope methodology. The first scope being the direct emissions uh, from the company's activities. For instance, uh, airlines uh, would be um, uh, to, uh, for instance, uh, the emissions produced by, by an airline would be comprised of its fuel consumption. Uh, the second scope will take into account the emissions incurred during the generation of the purchased energy for a company's activity. For instance, uh, uh, the emissions coming from the power plants used in, in utility uh, electricity provider. And finally, the third scope is the more, more encompassing one and takes into account all indirect uh, emissions. So take into account 
both upstream and downstream value chain of the reporting company. Uh, so, and just a, a, a another comment here, a side comment, when it comes to wealth income data, then because we are dealing with mainly the flow of uh, revenues coming from wealth, this is already, um, uh, this already exists in, in the tax filing, for instance, the IRS in the United States uh, uh, uses uh, uh, or require um, firms and individuals to report its uh, capital gains, for instance. So this is wouldn't be so much of a, a problem for us here. So uh, the main issue then is, of course, um, how broad is this firm, this firm level data? And in that sense, we see that in the several countries, there have been some disclosure efforts from regulatory agencies that are requiring companies and firms to disclose uh, information on carbon emission of their activities. So for instance, in the United Kingdom, the Bank of England is concerned with uh, calculating the amount of emissions that uh, is coming from its portfolio, portfolio holdings. So the firms and corporates and companies that issues bonds that are held by the Bank of England have to disclose uh, emission information. Um, so for instance, in, by 2025, they will require all these companies to disclose, disclose scope three emissions. In the same vein, in the European Union, there is the what is called the European Union taxonomy. Uh, that is a document uh, that has uh, firm level mitigation and adaptation actions that they require from the several industries uh, from different sectors. So as of as of now, uh, it already comprises over 80% of CO2 emissions, and this number is likely to increase in the near future. Uh, this year, in 2022, the, in the United States, the uh, Security Exchange Commission proposed uh, to include in the, uh, require the publicly listed companies requirements, the disclosure of scope one and scope two emissions, and in some cases, also the scope three. And there are other initiatives, uh, especially multilateral initiatives, for instance, the task force on carbon disclosure, that is more of a recommendation. So uh, it's not mandatory, but over a thousand companies uh, with net worth uh, over $200 trillion already disclose this kind of um, information on its carbon emissions, their carbon emissions. Um, so when we were thinking about how to uh, do estimates in our work in, to uh, make our case more robust, we thought it would be only natural to uh, use the same source of information that uh, the European Union, the Bank of England and the SEC are using in their uh, policy analysis, right? So um, the ESG rating databases, they use the same kind of information on carbon emissions, which are coming from the GHG protocol and the carbon disclosure projects. 
And specifically for our work, we are using the MSCI ESG database, which comprises over 9,000 companies and bonds. Um, and what we do to classify the companies is basically you, uh, we use two criteria. So the first thing is that we use this carbon emissions weight, which is a number that tries to capture the importance uh, to the green transition of the industry where the company is. So we're selecting the 35% highest weights, which means that we're effective, effectively dealing with uh, firms that are in the most energy intensive and fuel intensive sectors in the economy. And next, there is this uh, second uh, criterion, which is the carbon emission score, that effectively grades the company's action, actions on low carbon technology and uh, what they are doing to improve their energy and carbon efficiency. So here, the, um, uh, what we do is, is more straightforward. Uh, firms scoring low in this criterion, um, we, are, we classify them as carbon intensive and companies scoring high, which means that they are actively contributing to the green transition, they are what we call the green companies. And finally, because we're trying to get some estimates out of, all, out of uh, this, we cross this uh, uh, this methodology with the S&P 500 uh, companies to get their, uh, the behavior of stock prices in order to uh, estimate returns on uh, green and carbon intensive uh, firms. So basically, this is the graph where um, we plot our results. So as I uh, told you before, um, we're using S&P 500 stock performances between 2010 and 2021. And then we apply fast, uh, the fast fuel here transform, which is a way to select the low frequency oscillations of the time series. So uh, you can see here like one of the stylized facts on climate. I get a note here that uh, we are stuck on slide 10, uh, everybody's seeing the slides or is no, that- That was before Willy, it's fine now. Oh, that's fine now, okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you, Willy. Um, but anyway, uh, the result of our estimation is uh, this one that we plot in the graph here. So, uh, we move on to the, the final section in our presentation, in our paper, which is trying to uh, understand what happens uh, to the investor's decision in different tax, tax schemes, right? So we use for that this dynamic portfolio model, which basically is uh, one investor that has to choose between three different assets, safe, green, and carbon intensive assets that have time varying returns. Um, so basically, this investor is maximizing the intertemporal uh, utility. And equation four here, we uh, have the, uh, the equation that tells the law of motion of wealth. And basically, it decreases as the level of consumption uh, uh, because of the level of consumption, and it decreases 
based on the returns on investments uh, chosen by the investor. And the key variable here is this PI2 variable is the share of assets effectively allocated into green companies, right? So we run this model for 40 periods to get a sense of what happens um, uh, dynamically to this investor, right? So the first result we found is that when we apply a carbon, a classical carbon taxation uh, in this system, which is the taxation that is levied on products or consumption, um, very few things change. Mainly the only thing that gets, uh, that changes uh, is the consumption level, which of course is expected because carbon tax is by and large a consumption tax. So investments decisions are more or less unaffected by it. So here's one of the, um, uh, the key ideas here is that when we introduce a taxation on uh, uh, carbon intensive wealth, we are doing something that classical taxation is not doing, which is uh, altering returns and altering investment decisions. So in this graph, we just keep track of uh, the path of wealth in different scenarios. We are uh, doing some simulations, basically with 20% uh, tax and 40% tax, and the case where we use the tax revenues to fund subsidies, and when we just don't use uh, uh, the, the tax revenues for, uh, for subsidies, right? So we see that for 40% uh, taxation, there is uh, a meaningful change in the pattern here, so especially in the middle periods, wealth uh, stops decreasing or decreases uh, less intensely. Um, and because we're dealing with a dynamic setup, even in the later periods, uh, the wealth path is slightly higher in the case where uh, the taxation is higher. And what happened is not is counterintuitive, but what is happening behind the scenes here is that the investor is choosing uh, green investments earlier on, and that has uh, long-term consequences and ben beneficial consequences to the wealth path. Uh, like these two graphs, I'm showing uh, how the returns change given the different tax schemes we're simulating. And you can see that uh, the, for the, the uh, majority of uh, the periods, uh, what happens is that the returns get uh, are altered in the early periods. Um, and finally, here we I plotted the pi2 variable, which is the share of green investments the investor decides to invest. And we see here uh, we have a sense of how effective this uh, taxation is because uh, especially in the early periods, the, the investor chooses, to allocate more on green uh, firms. And this is really important in the climate transition uh, context because we know that early investment is one of the crucial elements to the green transition. So moving on to the conclusions, uh, basically what we wanted to convey here in the presentation is that the carbon wealth tax actually is a necessary measure because we do need 
more uh, climate-oriented policy. And this one in particular targets uh, divestment from away from carbon-intensive capital. It is feasible in the sense that it is adi an additional high capital gains taxation on carbon-intensive companies. And uh, insofar as the disclosure requirements from the regulatory agencies go, go on and move, move forward, the implementation will be even easier in the next years because the information will be uh, more widely available and is effective. If the uh, tax is high enough, it, it, it can shift the returns on carbon intensive and green assets and therefore it changes the invest the portfolio decisions. Uh, that means that the investor allocates a higher share of capital to green economies. And that means basically that there is more finance to the green transition. And it also ensures a better long-term wealth path. Also, we have to uh, finish uh, the presentation by saying that is a good policy tool against rising inequality, especially of wealth, which is a, a, a pressing issue nowadays. And it's, of course, a better sharing of public bad, uh, public goods that in our case is a public bad. All right, so yeah, let me stop uh, sharing here. And I guess now, Rafael. Yes, let me share my screen. And I will check that. Um, I can change slides. Is that changing for you? Okay, great. Yes. Um, well, thank you. For, thank you very much. This was really a very interesting proposal. And thank you for the invitation uh, to be part of this panel. And thank you to the Henry George School for um, organizing. So uh, I'm just going to give maybe some context to the issue of income inequality and also wealth inequality. And then I'll try to relate a little bit um, with the, the presentation we just have had in terms of the drivers of inequality. Um, so I couldn't resist but to start this presentation by showing you this cover of The Economist, May 23rd, 2019. Um, celebrating uh, the so-called uh, unprecedented jobs boom. And what this was about was very low unemployment rate, right, which had dropped to a 50-year low of 3.5%. Um, and so the economist was celebrating this. But of course, the full macroeconomic context of the past 40 years suggests that for the majority of workers, this has been uh, a very incomplete and misleading picture. And so any, any uh, recent wage increase is barely making up for lost ground um, in the past decades. And uh, if you look at you know, what I roughly describe as a labor squeeze, um, this is primarily looking at income. Uh, you will see uh, a decline in the labor share in total national income um, in the US. Uh, you will see the so-called wage productivity disconnect, which is the idea that wages have fallen out of whack uh, with increases in GDP and increases in corporate profit and have been stagnant. You will find uh, increased 
precarity and earnings volatility for households, and you will find a changing nature of the American work contract with more precarity and, and fewer benefits uh, for workers. Um, I could show you a couple charts that you may or may not be familiar with. This is the uh, fall in the labor share um, in the past decades. The labor share is the proportion of uh, national income that goes to waged uh, workers. Uh, you see at the end right there, like this picks up, and I guess this is what people have been calling the great resignation uh, during COVID, uh, increasingly uh, people quitting their jobs and, and renegotiating um, salaries, apparently. Uh, so this actually shows up uh, in the labor share. This is the, uh, I, I'm a big fan of this chart, the um, productivity pay uh, disconnect. This is the Economic Policy Institute. And you really see in the late 70s, the sort of flattening of uh, the um, hourly compensation growth um, as compared with uh, increases in GDP and productivity. Uh, and so you get this compounding in, effect where at the end of that process where uh, wages are really behind. Um, this is an increase in income uh, volatility. This is the work of Jacob uh, Hacker at Yale. Um, unfortunately, he sort of stopped uh, doing this in 2004, but this was a very interesting approach, looking at the increase in the volatility in family income. Uh, and seeing the increase in volatility. So more uncertainty for people um, uh, with higher, uh, higher standard, standard deviations uh, of, their, of their income. And then, uh, you know, finally this, um, this is the World Inequality Database. This is the work of Piketty and um, some of his uh, co-authors. Uh, and, and one, you know, one of the major contribution of Piketty is is the use of um, of tax data, right, to try to um, figure out uh, wealth and income. So it's interesting methodolo methodology me methodological approach. Now, according to um, to Piketty, it's, it's, it's the distribution of income that is actually a key factor accounting for, um, um, I'm sorry, it's the, the distribution of labor income, so wages, which is a key factor in um, the evolution of income inequality today. And so um, what he identifies is the explosion of these very high incomes from labor, that have been observed in the US since the 1980s. And this idea that the working rich have replaced coupon clipping rentier. Um, and that's the idea that if you look at um, people at the very top of the income distribution, they tend to be uh, waged earners, right? Um, they derive a salary. And so for Piketty, um, the, the overperformance of the top 1% of wages is actually what explains nearly three quarters of the increase in inequality since 1970. So it's primarily a story about wages in, in Piketty. Um, and you, know, you can 
kind of relate to this idea by looking at CEO to worker compensation. And you see this explosion in these top salary, the so-called um, super managers. These are CEOs. Um, by the way, about 60% uh, of top salaries have to do with a CEO compensation. Uh, 20% have to have to has to do with finance finance executives executives compensation. Um, so primarily, we're talking about CEO to worker ratios going up. Okay, so that's for income inequality. Now, is this to say that wealth inequality is not relevant? Of course not. Um, tradition. So these income measures. Uh, fail to account for the full picture and for all dimensions of, of inequality and, and even income inequality, and specifically don't really adequately reflect all of the advantages of asset ownership. Um, so in the literature, you'll find lots of people arguing that wealth inequality is uh, arguably needed in order to have the full complete picture of um, both wealth, but also income um, inequality. And uh, historically, um, you'll find that uh, the ownership of wealth and the ownership of capital income has always been more concentrated than labor income. So I pulled uh, these data from Piketty that in all known societies and at all recorded times, the working class, so the bottom 50%, generally owns less than 5% or close to 5% of total wealth. The top 10% generally owns at least 60% of wealth and up to 90% of wealth, right? And this has been like across countries across time um, as a kind of a constant. So wealth inequality has traditionally been uh, greater than income inequality. Now in the US, the rise in Top wealth share has been well documented. There's the work of Edward Wolf at NYU. Um, what's interesting about the wealth distribution is that if you look at the very top of the wealth distribution, so like people in the Forbes 500 or 400, um, you will find power law dynamics. Um, so the, the, the distribution changes and becomes um, a power law essentially. Uh, for Saez and Zuckman, the rise of wealth inequality is almost entirely due to the rise of the top 0.1% wealth share. Um, and the statistics, statistic is really interesting, right? 7% in 1979 and 22% in 2012. Uh, so again, we have a story of the tippy top sort of driving, um, driving the increase. This is the original uh, chart figure from Piketty, you may recognize this wealth inequality in the US over a 200 year period. Um, you'll see the, the top 1% and top 10% wealth shares and, and you'll see this dip uh, in the first half of the, of the century, um, uh, which Piketty attributes to a number of shocks, right? Wars and fiscal shocks. Um, and then you'll see that uh, kind of stabilization uh, in the in, uh, post-World War II period. And then the um, wealth share of the top 10% and 1% starts going up again. Uh, here's some more uh, updated data, again, from the World Inequality Database. 
um, showing you the, the evolution of, of top 1%, top 10%, and, and middle 40% share. And these are going in the direction of increasing uh, wealth inequality. So what are the drivers of this? So Piketty's main hypothesis you may be familiar with is the famous RG differential, uh, which is the idea that the um, uh, when the rate of return on capital exceeds the rate of growth in the economy, i.e. GDP growth, then this automatically leads to an increase in the share of capital income in national income. So you'll find uh, less going to wages and more going to capital. Um, and this leads over time to an increased concentration of wealth. Um, now, the Piketty himself doesn't really have an explanation for um, the, uh, the, the exact mechanism for this, um, especially when we look at uh, the concentration of wealth, you know, he mentions in a footnote of chapter 10, um, there's a reference to the technical annex of the book. And when you go to the technical annex of the book, you'll find that uh, it can be found in dynamic macroeconomic wealth accumulation models that when you have a difference between the rate of return on capital and the rate of economic growth, then it, it impacts equilibrium wealth distribution, right? And he shows that the Pareto coefficient of the wealth distribution is a function of this RG differential. So it's kind of buried in, you know, in, in a footnote, in an appendix, um, and, and not necessarily um, unpacked very well. But um, so here's the uh, evolution of RG differential, and you, you, you find that the collapse of R uh, in the um, first half of the 20th century, right, um, combined with the increase in G is what led to the um, a decline of the capital share, and um, this is now being reversed. So the maybe the missing perspective in Piketty that it that is interesting to think about and also relates to to the framework for the the, the the tax on carbon wealth is this more microeconomic perspective right looking at uh the evolution of net worth and evolution of financial portfolios over time and understanding investor behavior and seeing if if there's uh, any link between the wealth distribution and investor behavior. And what's pretty striking is that there are differences in not just wealth, but the return on, on wealth, right? The uh, rate of return so that wealthier investors tend to, to earn higher returns in the long run. Uh, and there's a couple of statistics uh, in Piketty. Um, the, Top 1% earned an average annual return of 5.91% between 2010 and 2013, but the middle three quintiles of the distribution earned only 3.27%. And so uh, if you want to understand what could be driving these differences in return, right? So it's not just R, but it's the distribution of R, then you have to approach the issue of wealth inequality and the process of wealth accumulation from a more microeconomic perspective where you're, you're more focused on investor behavior. So this allows you to think about some 
uh, drivers of wealth inequality, such as the impact of the asset management industry on wealth inequality, um, the impact of better performing investments and higher returns for some uh, investors, and ask the question of how wealth inequality is shaped by the performance of global financial markets. So um, I'll show you three dimensions to this, right? Three different approaches in the literature of thinking about this. First, investor level characteristics. So when you look at factors such as um, factors that, that drive savings rate, right? So things like time preferences, bequest motives, uh, liquidity constraints, but also differences in investor parameters, such things like risk aversion or investment horizon, you will find that differences between investors are a key driver for inequality in the wealth distribution. And you will also find that rich households uh, tend to save at higher rates. So investor level characteristics are relevant. The second uh, approach in the literature is to point to luck as a driving extreme wealth inequality. Now, at first that sounds a little bizarre, uh, but the idea here is if you take the efficient market hypothesis uh, seriously, right, um, then the market produces winners and losers. And so some people have gains, some people have losses. And you, when you have multiplicative return dynamics, these differences actually, when they're compounded, actually lead to Pareto wealth distribution. So the impact is multiplied in the system through these compounding effects. Um, I don't find this hypothesis very compelling. I think it's more of a, of a theoretical exercise of doing simulations, but ultimately I don't, I don't really buy the idea that luck alone is responsible for the increase in uh, uh, wealth inequality. The third uh, hypothesis, which is quite compelling, is the idea that wealthier investors get higher returns. And there are two ways that they can do this. Uh, they can have um, higher betas, so they have the ability to take on more risk. And when you take on higher risk levels, you tend to get higher returns on average, and that's called the beta. Or you can get higher returns per unit of risk, so you don't even need to take more risk. Um, you just get alpha, which is a return over and above the beta. And so... Um, Looking at these two drivers uh, of, of um, higher returns for wealthier investors, is it, you know, you, it's really an invitation to, again, think not just about the RG differential, but the distribution of G uh, across investors. And I'll show you why that might be something interesting to think about. First, if you consider the composition of wealth, of household wealth, this is a... Um, between 1983 and 2016, this is uh, the Edward Wolf. And um, well, what you notice here, th this is, uh, by the way, the aggregate uh, composition of wealth. So it's not broken down uh, yet by different wealth levels, but you'll find that uh, li liquid assets have decreased, um, uh, but most of that has been shifted into pension accounts, right? People's retirements. And then you'll also, maybe you'll note that uh, the, you have de higher debt income ratios. So people tend to have more debt than they used to. 
so that's that's the evolution during that entire period. But now look at the picture if you focus on the composition of household wealth by wealth class. So you look at the top 1%, you look at the next 19%, and then you look at you know, the middle class, the, the middle three wealth quintiles. And what you'll note here is quite interesting that first uh, for the middle class, right? The, the home is the primary asset that they have um, that's a driver of their wealth. Um, but that is not the case at all for the top 1% or the top uh, 20%. Uh, you'll find that uh, the top 1% tends to invest a lot more in securities and stocks, uh, as well as um, you know, directly into, into businesses. Uh, and of course, they have less, less debt. Now, it's, it's, what's interesting there are these different allocations in the portfolio, uh, which could explain differences in, in, um, in return, and particularly wealthier investors' um, ability to be much more invested in financial assets would be a key driver. Uh, whereas for the average person, you would only get the rate of return on a savings account in your in your bank account, you know, which has been very low as of late. So um, here's another table that is kind of interesting to look at, which shows you the return on on capital endowments of different univer U.S. universities. So it's it's showing you. Um, by size of the endowment, what the rate of return was. And this seems to suggest that uh, higher endowments have higher returns, right? So if you, if you look at the Harvards and Yales and Princetons and endowments higher than 1 billion, they, they get higher rates of return than smaller endowments. Why endowments? Because the data is publicly available. So it's easy to look at the data. Uh, so this, this was in Piketty, right? This was what originally brought my attention on these issues on these issues I thought it was quite interesting um, now why would uh, wealthier investors get higher returns well they have access to sophisticated asset managers uh, and even now um, asset management is, is changing this is a slide which I took from uh, Apollo the presentation of Apollo, you know, the, the big uh, private equity powerhouse to its investors. Uh, and Apollo is now claiming that the old world of portfolio management, you know, this 60-40% allocation to equity and fixed income is now a thing of the past. And so now what's really important in, in an environment where public markets are not delivering as much alpha as they used to, uh, what's important now is to have some allocation to alternatives in your portfolio. Um, and, you know, they call this the fixed income replacement strategy as the next frontier in the evolution of investor allocation. Um, so what that indicates to me is, hey, if you have access to this more sophisticated portfolio management, then you'll get higher returns than if you don't. Um, and I'll finish by showing um, just a remark, right? The idea that alternative investments now play a material role in the investment portfolios of high net worth individual, individuals 
uh, could be interesting to think about. Now, when you look at Apollo, they have recently merged with an insurance company called Athene. And if you look at the return of Athene's alternative investment portfolio over the past nine years, and this is very recent data, I, I just pulled it off their um, investor report. Uh, over, the nine, uh, over the past nine years, they've generated 12% annually. Now here's the thing, right? These returns are delivered by Apollo's uh, skill as a, an alternative investment asset manager. Um, if you are an Athene annuity uh, holder, you only get two, 3% on your annuity. But if you are a uh, investing in a private equity fund that then you know, is, is being managed by Apollo, you'll probably get a much higher share of, of those returns because you'll only be paying management fees. So the point here is um, that it's interesting to think about how uh, sophisticated asset managers are delivering superior returns. And it, it's interesting to think about the availability of those returns uh, across uh, the wealth distribution the impact that that might have on wealth inequality. Um, and that leads me to uh, perhaps circle back with the, the carbon uh, tax that was just presented to us. Um, that would be a great way to kill two birds with one stone, right? Which is make uh, more funding available to, to finance the green transition, but also. Uh, tax those, um, those high returns that can be generated on, on, on uh, non-environmentally friendly assets. And so my question here would be, um, I guess one question I have is in terms of identifying these, um, these companies and, and relying potentially on disclosures and disc disclosure frameworks to do that, uh, how to think about private companies that are in private portfolios that maybe are managed by private equity funds uh, like Apollo, uh, if they don't report, um, if they don't adhere to these disclosure frameworks, what do we do? Because there has to be a way to be able to uh, also you know, assess the tax on, on, on returns that are generated through these types of private alternative investments. Um, so that would be um, that would be one question uh, I would have for uh, for our panelists, and maybe I'll I'll pause here and, and and stop and see if we have some some questions. So we have. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.